Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Totally Driven... Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bareback Facts. And this is the first edition of this show on Totally Driven Radio. Special thanks to uh, Bay Rodney for uh, having me on. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the legend of mighty Achilles. For those of you unfamiliar with Achilles, he is one of the most prominent heroes uh, in Greek mythology, uh, and he has some lessons that we can learn uh, from his life and from his legacy. So, um, Achilles himself is the most prominent character in the Iliad, uh, which is Homer's uh, epic poem about the Trojan War. Now, there has been lots of debate about the Trojan War, uh, particularly among scholars, um, but what we do know is there was some sort of conflict in this area of the world. Um, and prominent scholars such as Barry S. Strauss uh, of Cornell who have written several books. Uh, he himself has personally written several books. Uh, the most, uh, probably the best known book that he's written is called The Trojan War, New History. Uh, and since uh, discovered that there was, in fact, some sort of conflict between uh, the Greek city-states during this time uh, that Homer and his contemporaries would have been familiar with. Now, whether or not um, these characters that he's using are based on actual people or not is still a matter of debate. But nonetheless, Um, Achilles becomes one of the most prominent figures of Greek myth, and he becomes sort of a lesson for many young Greek men. Uh, The Iliad itself uh, becomes a very influential piece throughout the Greek world. Um, You know, it was considered a mark of masculinity, a mark of maturity among young Greek men who could recite the epic poem from memory. Um, So this was, this poem became extremely influential. In addition to that, young Greeks who were aspiring warriors, sought to learn from Achilles' example. Uh, and the example uh, of really just facing uh, conflict and head, facing uh, your challenges head on. So what we're going to talk about specifically in regards to the Iliad is not so much the story itself, because for those of you who've seen movies such as Troy, you kind of have a general idea of what the story is. Um, so we're not going to really focus too much on that. We're going to focus more or less on Achilles. So let's get started uh, talking about Achilles. Now, uh, Achilles is the son of the mortal mortal king Peleus, uh, king of the Myrmidons, and the Nereid, or the sea nymph named Thetis. Achilles is described as the bravest, most handsome, uh, and greatest warrior of the army of Agamemnon, who is a Greek king. Uh, Now, according to Homer's epic, Achilles is brought up by his mother at Phthia with his cousin and inseparable companion inseparable companion, Patroclus, uh, and it's only in later tales that we find out uh, that Achilles is said to be invincible, all except uh, his, his Achilles heel, uh, which for many people uh, has become a huge uh, theme. Now, Achilles is perhaps one of the first real superheroes uh, of, uh, of our, of our uh, through in, in any sort of historical epic. Now, of course, people will argue that, you know, the epic of Gilgamesh, perhaps which predates it, uh, sort of has a superhero, but Achilles is the first, like, real superhero. He's a, he's a human being. He's a very, he is very human. 
uh, he himself has relationships with other human beings. He experiences love. He experiences grief. He experiences triumph. He is extremely human. He's a very relatable character. Uh, because of all of his experiences just in the Iliad alone, uh, he is a very identifiable character, but he's also one that we ourselves can identify with because he is very now. That being said, he possesses almost immortal-like qualities. He is a, he's a fantastic fighter. Uh, he is tremendously agile. In, in the conflict in which he fights, he is said to slay men by the hundreds. He's incredibly skilled on the battlefield. He's everything that a young man at this time would want to be. Now, I want you guys to picture, I want you to picture this. When Achilles was born, he was born uh, in the face of, bearing the face of this massive prophecy. Before his mother married the King Peleus, Zeus and Poseidon feuded over which one of them was actually going to marry his mother. Now, you know, I don't know how you guys would feel about this, but imagine being born to a mortal king who has his own kingdom and finding out later that your mother was very nearly the lover of a god. That is, that is some heavy burdens to bear. But in addition to that, there is a reason that these two gods actually back off and allow her to marry Peleus in the first place. And the reason is there is a prophecy delivered by Prometheus to the two gods, Poseidon and Zeus, who were quarreling over Thetis. And that prophecy is that whoever Thetis links up with, her son is going to surpass the father. He will be greater than the father ever could have been. This is the prophecy that follows Achilles' mother around. And because of this, Zeus and Poseidon, being the uh, big macho gods that they are, certainly don't want to get shown up by their son, especially if their son is going to be half-mortal. They definitely don't want that. Um, so they decide they're going to back off and they allow her to marry Peleus. Peleus, on the other hand, is already a king. He's getting on up in years. He doesn't really care if Achilles surpasses him. That's what sons are supposed to do. They're supposed to surpass their fathers. Uh, and Peleus is all too ready for that to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that Peleus doesn't, uh, you know, um, believe that his son uh, should earn his keep. With that being said, it also doesn't mean he doesn't think he should protect Achilles, which he attempts to do. Um, but still, this prophecy follows Achilles. He is born into a world in which it is predicted that he will be glorious. He will be great. This is a heavy expectation. But uh, in addition to it being a heavy expectation for Achilles, this is sort of an expectation that we all are born with, right? That when we are born, our parents have high hopes for us. They expect us to be, uh, they, they expect the world uh, to unfold before us. They want everything to go right for us. That's what parents do, right? And Achilles is in this same situation, except Achilles, for him, he is born into a world in which it is already ordained that he is going to be glorious. He's going to be great. But that's not all. Prophecy continues to follow Achilles. Prophecy follows Achilles uh, to his, his adulthood. Now, later mythographers related that Peleus receives an oracle that his son would die fighting in Troy. Now, the, difference, the, the different stories that we have between the Iliad and, and written, written works by uh, gentlemen such as Statius, um, who comes a little bit later than Homer, uh, tell us that it's either Peleus or Thetis, his mother, who receives this divine prophecy that if Achilles goes to Troy, he will attain glory 
uh, in everything that he does. He will be the most famed warrior in all of the world. But it will come as a, at a price, and the price is that Achilles will never come home, that he will die, uh, and that, you know, despite achieving everlasting fame, he'll never come home to his family, and he'll never pass on sons. Uh, so this is a major concern for Peleus. It's a major concern for his wife's status because in this time period, you have to understand that your children become uh, the way in which you advance yourself. Now, you might say, well, Peleus is a king. His mother, you know, Thetis is an immortal. How much could they advance themselves? Well, it's not just about their advance. Alliances are made through marriage. And kingships are passed oftentimes, especially during this period specifically, patrilineally. So they are passed from father to son uh, and so on and so forth. If Achilles dies before passing on an heir, uh, and Peleus was to die before Achilles returns home, that leaves his kingdom in a state of flux. So uh, Peleus moves to protect Achilles from this. He attempts to hide him uh, in another city, um, but destiny calls Achilles. A soothsayer named Calchas uh, informs, appears before the court in Lycomedes, and tells them that Troy will not be taken without Achilles. And so all can looking for Achilles. So destiny is calling, and Achilles is forced to answer. He cannot run from it. And even if he wants to, he can't. But here's what makes Achilles so special. Not only is Achilles not going to run from it, he embraces this. Uh, he embraces this destiny that I'm going to be great. I'm going to be glorious. Uh, and even if I don't make it, even if I die, uh, I'm still going to go. I'm still going to Troy. Uh, and he visits his mother before she, he leaves, and she reveals to him, yes, there is this prophecy. If you, don't, if you go to Troy, you're never coming home, and I don't want you to go. And he says, well, what happens if I don't go? And she says, well, you'll pass into obscurity, you, you won't make a mark. Um, you know, you'll, you'll have babies and you'll, you'll, re, you, you know, you'll, you'll reap the benefits of being on the earth, but, but no one will remember your name. In, in years that go by, people will forget you, uh, and, but that's okay because you'll be safe. And Achilles says, yeah, I'm not feeling that. I'm not feeling that at all. He said, he basically tells his mother to the effect that I'm going. This is my destiny. I am going to embrace this destiny. Now, Achilles' name uh, is particularly interesting as well. As we continue to talk about him, I'm going to be uh, sort of mentioning these sorts of things. But his name is formed from two words. The first is Akos, and the second is Laos. Uh, the first means grief, uh, and the second means of the people or, or tribe. Uh, so his name literally translates to the grief of the people. And Achilles is often identified with grief. He forms this tremendous juxtaposition throughout the Iliad in which uh, he is balancing between these ideas of being glorious and these ideas of honor and steadfastness and loyalty and courage and ferocity in battle, but also it's balanced with the other side of battle, this, this idea of grief. And this is what comes as a result of battle. So Achilles, he does grieve. 
Uh, he grieves for men when they die. He grieves for the men that he kills. And he grieves for people close to him that die. Um, now, a lot, of the, a lot of people that have analyzed the Iliad talk a lot more about uh, Homer's analysis of Achilles' rage, which is really what most of the Iliad is about. It's about uh, Achilles' reaction to not only the conflict that he's involved in, but also the people around him that are attempting to make power plays, such as Agamemnon, who is all in uh, this war, doesn't really care about his men, cares only about winning, cares only about being the greatest king the world has ever seen. On the other side, you have Priam, who cares about the glory of Troy, who cares about upholding prestige, uh, who cares about really just, you know, not only defending his kingdom, that comes secondary. He cares about looking good before the gods. He is an opulent king, but he is also a more humble king than Agamemnon. He realizes later on in the, as you go through the Iliad, you realize later on that Priam is actually much more noble than Agamemnon. Agamemnon is very greedy, whereas Priam is, is later humbled, and this comes as a result of his losses which Achilles uh, is able to relate to. Now, Achilles may seem like an unidentifiable character to some because we have movies like, again, like Troy, in which Achilles is depicted as this uh, very macho, uh, immortal, almost immortal, invincible guy who's running around killing people uh, without, without, a, without any hesitation. Uh, he, is, he is graceful. He is deadly. Uh, and from the time that he was a young man, from the time that he was a young boy, not only is he trained in the arts of war, he's told, you're, you're going to be the greatest warrior the world has ever seen. You are going to be the greatest killer the world has ever known. And throughout the Iliad and throughout the movie Troy, there are several quotes, references to this. Agamemnon openly states, Achilles was born to end lives. Every hero that comes along in the Iliad references the fact that Achilles is the game changer. He is the guy. We cannot win this war without Achilles on the field. He is the end-all, be-all. There's nobody in these battles he cannot kill. And yet, Achilles himself has this hovering destiny above him this whole time. He seems so invincible, but destiny is chasing him every step of the way. His destiny is to die at Troy. And the unfortunate, the most unfortunate part of it is he has no idea how it's going to happen. Uh, and now you might say, well, that's, you know, that's kind of like life. You know, nobody really knows when they're going to die or how they're going to die, right? But Achilles knows that this is where he is going to die, but he has no idea who's going to be the guy that kills him. Uh, and, you know, one of the other unique things about this story uh, that really solidifies this idea that Achilles really is this big-time superhero uh, is that look at who he's surrounded with in the Iliad. For those of you unfamiliar, the Iliad is almost like the, it's almost like the Avengers, but in, but in ancient times. You have to imagine that the greatest superheroes in the world at this time are all fighting in the same place, and they're not alone. They're not just half-mortal, half-immortal guys running around. The gods themselves are fighting in the Iliad. They are on the field with these men. Now, of course, uh, historically speaking, there's no way to substantiate the claim that there was gods on the field, and it's most unlikely that that ever happened, and we would have to be able to prove it if it did. But what's important is that Homer uh, makes it clear in his book that not only are these heroes fighting, they are fighting and combating not only one another, they are combating gods. 
Achilles himself wounds Ares, the god of war, on the, in one of the battles. I mean, this is, a, this is an epic poem in which these guys are not only in a struggle uh, between two massive, uh, in, between the city-states and a massive kingdom, but they're also in a struggle against supernatural forces. So Achilles himself is not only having to engage guys like Ajax, heroes like Hector, uh, who was said at this time to be the other, you know, he was the other guy that's touted as, you know, the greatest warrior in the world. We have men such as Pelagon. We have the Dioscuri. For those of you unfamiliar with the Dioscuri, uh, their two brothers, Hercules, uh, is at these battles. And many people are familiar with Hercules and his feats. Um, you know, the son of Zeus, Hercules. The Dioscuri, of course, Castor and Pollux are, are fighting uh, two famous uh, twin warriors, so Odysseus uh, from the Odyssey is also at these battles. He's also fighting. Uh, we have Menelaus, the king, who's also fighting. All these champions that are running around uh, at this time, they're all fighting in this battle. So it's basically a collection of the greatest Greek heroes uh, in all their mythologies, all doing this one big battle. They're all doing this 10-year war. Uh, they're all part of this. And Achilles is either fighting alongside some of them in the case of the Dioscuri, or he's fighting against them in the case of Hector. And so we have truly got a collection of really all-around just hardcore, uh, the best warriors in the world. And I want you guys to picture yourselves during this time. Now, aside, take aside the supernatural for a moment, the supernatural quality, you know, potentially having gods fighting at this place. I want you to discard that for a moment. I want you to think about the idea of being trained from the age of six years old to, to bear a shield, a heavy shield made of bronze and a spear that's bronzed, and you have a sword. And from the time you were six years old, your father trained you in the art of war. Now I want you to picture that not only have your father been training you, but now you've reached the age of ten. You've gotten a little bit, you've gotten a little bit stronger. You've been training for three years. Now you're going to start training with other other boys. Now, now it's going to get more serious. You're going to be sparring. You guys are lifting heavy metal weapons, and you're boys, you're young boys. And now I want you to picture that you've been doing this, and now you're 15 years old. You're considered a grown man by this time standards and you're running around toned, muscular, because you're in good shape. You've been training to kill people for the last eight years. You've been, you know, for the last eight to nine years, that's what your, your life has been about, learning to kill other people. You've been learning military tactics from generals, from your father, who was most likely either a, either a higher-up guy uh, in that society, perhaps a general himself, maybe a king, maybe a, a minor noble, whatever the case may be, but let's just say that that's you. You're 15 years old. You, by this time, are capable of killing any other man. You are in a position where you have been trained to be a weapon of destruction. And now... I want you to picture that after being trained as a weapon of this, of, of, of essentially just a, a weapon, being born to end lives, now I want you to picture everyone around you is telling you that the greatest war that's ever going to happen is going to happen now, and that your purpose now is to go 
and seek glory. That sounds really intense, right? You think about this. You've been training your whole life for this moment. Now, you know, people now, you've got a lot of macho guys out there that say, you know, yeah, that sounds really great, sounds really hardcore. Yeah, that's my kind of lifestyle. But I, but I want you to understand, I want you to understand that these guys were trained from such a young age and once they reach this, you know, 14, 15 years old, they are ready. They are now soldiers. Now, in our time, being a soldier, you know, you're thinking, you know, somebody in their 20s, you know, and they're, and warfare back then was a lot different. You've got to imagine that you've got a 15-year-old kid now who is riding around on a chariot bearing spears and, sharp, and, and a sword, a, a bronze shield, and these guys' sole job now is to run around and kill guys their age and older than them. This is a lot different than war movies you see now. You see movies like Troy, and what you see is grown men. You know, you see grown men in their 30s who look grizzled and, and, and strong and look like they've been around for a while, look like they've lived long lives. But this is not the reality. I want you to understand that this is not the reality of this time period. People did not live that long at this time. They didn't live that long. People that were soldiers, they didn't live to be in their 30s unless they were really, really good at what they did. Most people during this time don't live until, you know, they don't live past their mid-20s. Most soldiers during this time, they don't live that long, particularly men in the infantry. Now, you see all these battles uh, in these movies where you have men on foot and they're fighting and they, they link up in a shield wall, the phalanx, and, yeah, that's all great and it looks really, you know, really tough and, and they, they march like this. This is not the preferred method of combat during this time. Uh, scholars have said, guys like, uh, we've got Barry S. Strauss, but not just Barry S. Strauss. Gentlemen such as J.E. Lendon have argued that most of these battles are going to be fought from horseback. Uh, or from chariots. Now, that being said, there is going to be infantry. You know, not everybody could afford a horse or a chariot, so a lot of guys are going to be on foot. But the preferred method of combat is to get on horseback or to get in a chariot. Why is this a preferred method? Would a guy like Achilles be running around, noble, uh, born of a king? Is he going to be running around on foot uh, like Brad Pitt and Troy? No, he's not going to be doing that. He's not going to be running around on foot. He's going to be in a chariot, or he is going to have a horse, and most likely he's going to be running around on a chariot. Maybe at the very beginning uh, of the battle he might, he might be on foot, but only, only momentarily. He and his second, whoever that happens to be, are going to be in a chariot because people that are of, of nobility during this time, they didn't walk. They don't walk. Uh, so these guys are not going to walk into battle. So you have Achilles in this in this sense, uh, he shows that he's he's very noble because again, he is riding around in a chariot. Uh he gets out of his chariot to fight one on one battles, uh, which you know really sells the, the quality of the epic is that we have these one on one battles in which we have Hector and you know, killing heroes one on one and then we have Achilles doing the same thing. We have Achilles taking out uh, you know, the king of um some obscure little ally of theirs. We have we have we have Achilles taking out uh, 
Memnon, the Ethiopian king, and the Amazon, uh, Pethensiela, um, who were who fighting alongside the Trojans and, and backing them up. These battles, you might get out of your, you might fight somebody one-on-one. But throughout the, throughout the Iliad, we have Achilles is mostly in a chariot. So it makes him a little bit less relatable to the common warrior that, we're, that we think about. Common warriors during this time were infantry, but not by choice. They were infantry because they didn't have a choice, because they didn't have horses, they didn't have access to chariots, they didn't have access to all these things. But one of the things that I really wanted to touch on when we talk about this is we've got to separate uh, myth and we've got to separate film from what is most likely what happened. I want, I, I want to try to de-glorify this time period just a little bit because you see the films, you see things like King Arthur, you see, and you think, this is amazing, this is great. This is an awesome battle. Yeah, it looks terrible at story, but man, aren't those guys manly men. I want you to understand that these guys may have been brave, but they had no choice but to be brave. These guys didn't want to be in these battles. They were forced into these battles oftentimes. They didn't want to be there. Their whole, their whole life was designed around uh, being soldiers. But what do you have soldiers for? To protect things, right? And if there is a reason to be at war... There's going to be a reason to protect things, and you're going to need soldiers for that. So these young men, uh, you know, you've got to de-glorify this a little bit and really get into the more humane part of this. The more human aspect of of warfare is that with every war, there are soldiers who don't want to be there. Uh, And, you know, Achilles is certainly not the guy who doesn't want to be there, but the people around him don't want to be there. And Achilles is actually sensitive enough that he senses this. He even tries to get his men out of there later on. Now, if we stay on, now if we get back to just talking more about Achilles, but I wanted to take that time to really kind of peel away the Hollywood veneer. I want you to understand the kind of individuals we're talking about here, the kind of people. Because, yes, this story is awesome. It's probably one of the greatest stories ever told. Uh, and it's been retold and repackaged and sold. Uh, you know, over over the centuries, people have retold it. It's been very influential in other in other uh, in determining other epics, and almost you know you can all, almost argue that uh, you know Achilles is such an epic hero uh, that he does influence. He does trickle down. He does influence the Siegfrieds and the and the you know later works, the Eric's, the all these guys that appear in later myths. But at the same time. Achilles himself is is very much human, and I also wanted to sell that part to you guys. This idea that he is very much human. He's got human emotions. He's got uh, human qualities. So while he is this tremendous warrior, he is very very human. Uh, so when we pick up into the Iliad, Achilles uh, is ravaging the country around Troy. He takes twelve cities, uh, and then he gets into a massive quarrel with the king. Uh, Agamemnon, in which Agamemnon uh, takes takes Chryseis, his prize uh, of war. She was a priest of Apollo, uh, and he takes her uh, because Agamemnon uh, was being punished by the king by the god Apollo uh, in the book, uh, who had decimated their camp with pestilence. Uh, so he had plagued them with some illness, uh, and he believed that Achilles needed to give up Chryseis because. Uh, Quite frankly, the gods weren't happy about it. Now, Agamemnon uh, decided uh, 
Agamemnon gives up Acrisius. Uh, so it's it's Chryseus that uh, I, I misspoke there. So Agamemnon gives up Chryseus uh, at the behest of Achilles. Uh, so it, Agamemnon uh, decides to recoup his loss by taking Achilles' favorite slave, Perseus. Uh, now, as a result of this, Achilles refuses uh, to go in battle alongside Agamemnon and his men. And consequently, as a result of this, the Greeks start losing. Uh, so because they start losing, um, you know, everybody's going to Achilles like, uh, we really need you. We need you. And this is one of the more human moments for Achilles because he says, no, this guy has disrespected me. Uh, I don't care if I'm the greatest warrior in the world. You guys should have thought about that before you disrespected me. Now I'm not going to help you out. Uh, so eventually, though, Achilles starts to feel bad about it, but not bad enough that he's going to go fight on his own. So he allows his cousin Patroclus to impersonate him. Uh, he lends him his chariot and his armor. So again, you see this uh, mention that I, you know I mentioned the chariot. Well, the chariot appears here again. And Hector, uh, this famous, the famed warrior of Troy, the the prince of Troy, kills Patroclus. Uh, now Achilles finds out about this, and he is furious. Uh, he reconciles with Agamemnon, and he attains some new armor from a god, uh, the craftsman god named Hephaestus. Uh, and decides that it is time uh, to, well, let's just say, uh, in the immortal words of uh, of uh, one of my favorite movies, from one of my favorite movies, uh, you know, uh, he was all out of bubble gum. Uh, he he had decided that uh, he he was just not going uh, to wait around anymore. Um, and it was destiny for him to, him to meet Hector. Everybody talks about it throughout the Iliad, and you see it in the movie Troy, uh, but you see it mostly in the Iliad. The discuss, there's, a, there's this unsteady dance between Hector and Achilles in which they meet several times on the field, but they don't engage each other. It, it builds. It's building a climax toward this moment, and there's a reason for this. Hector and Achilles uh, in Homer's epic have to be built up as these great and glorious heroes, so they Along the way, they're winning battles, they're killing other heroes, they're, they're killing hundreds of guys single-handedly, uh, they're turning the tide of battles single-handedly, and now it's finally made it to this moment. Finally, one of them has crossed the line, and that guy is Hector. Hector has crossed the line. Now, in Hector's defense, he did think that he had killed Achilles, but he was wrong. He had killed Patrocles and realizes his mistake, and thus uh, he begins to make peace with all of his relatives. And so Achilles actually uh, goes to the city. He demands that Hector come out, and, of course, uh, they, they duke it out. Achilles, of course, being, being the warrior that he is, kills Hector uh, and uh, takes him as a prize. Now, here's again where Achilles shows another human moment. Uh, because after he takes Hector as his prize, you know, a, a superhuman who doesn't care about anybody around him, who is ostensibly almost a god in and of, of himself, wouldn't really have reason uh, to, you know, cow to anybody's demands, uh, to cow to anybody's request. But Priam, the king of Troy, comes and requests Achilles. He says, please give me my son back. You killed him. I know he killed your relative, but now you've killed him, and that's it. Please give me my son. Uh, and Achilles really shows a human moment. His heart is broken for Priam. He feels bad about it. 
and he gives him back, and then he grants him peace in exchange. He gives him time to have the funeral rites for Hector, and this is where the Iliad, the original story, uh, ends. And then we have later, uh, later poets such as Arctunus uh, in Ethiopius who takes up the story of the Iliad and relates that Achilles having slain uh, these other kings, uh, Memnon and uh, Pathensilia, uh, is later slain in battle by Paris. But here's something that's particularly interesting about the way in which they kill off Achilles. Achilles is not simply killed by Paris, Hector's brother. That in and of itself would have made a great story, right? Killed, uh, you know, he of Paris being the brother of Hector, it was only right for him to avenge his brother's death, Hector's death, right? But that in and of itself is not enough because Achilles is not being killed by Paris out of just vengeance. The arrow that kills him is guided by the god Apollo himself. So it takes a god to kill Achilles, um, which makes him much more than human, right? Because Paris, Paris himself, you know, it would have been one thing if, you know, Paris would have just killed him himself. But that doesn't happen. Paris fires an arrow, and Apollo, and Apollo guides him. He tells him where, where to shoot Achilles, and then he takes the arrow, essentially grabs it, and stabs him with it. Uh, so Achilles is killed by divine intervention. So throughout the entire story, we have Achilles just really just tearing through uh, the Trojan forces. He is he's just absolutely dominating all these people. And then he meets his end at the hands of a god. This is what separates him uh, from a lot of these heroes. You know, we have a lot of heroes, particularly in Greek mythology, who have dealings with gods. You know, Hercules, of course, is is cursed by gods. He is punished by gods. Hera, the wife of Zeus, is constantly trying to kill him. But, you know, he is the son of a god. He is almost, you know, half god. Achilles is very much a man. He's very much a human. And yet he achieves so much uh, because he embraces his destiny. Uh, you know, he embraces the challenge of living up to this gloriousness that he's supposed to live up to. You think about uh, being given this prophecy when you're young, uh, that you have these high expectations. You know, as being born to a king at any time in which there have been kings is already a lot of pressure because you're automatically going to be compared to the king. You're his, his offspring. So you're going to be compared to him. You are his legacy. Um, and so when you are the legacy of a king, uh, you, you, have to, you have to think about, when you are a king's legacy, you have to think about the pressure that comes with being a king, right? Um, you, are, you are one day expected to take up that mantle and be a king. This in and of itself is a lot of pressure for Achilles. And I think we can all relate to this when we're all born. We are compared to our parents, right? Whatever our parents do, we, are, we start out with this expectation. And if you have siblings, of course, you're going to be compared to them. This, there's expectation, right? There's this great expectation. Well, what could be more of a greater expectation than being told when you're a young boy that you're the son of a king and you need to act this way and you need to be this way. You have a lot of things to live up to. That's one thing. But what could be even more, than, more pressure than that is to be told, not only are you the son of a king and you've got high expectations 
uh, laid out before you because your father was so great. But now you're destined, your destiny. We've been told what your destiny is. The oracles, the gods themselves have told us that you're destined for greatness. And you have to live up to that? That is a lot of pressure. But Achilles rises to the occasion. This is one of the lessons we can learn from Achilles. You know, yeah, we think about uh, these, these stories as, you know, oh, they're very much entertaining. But these stories are not just written for entertainment. They're written for us to learn from. Uh, these stories are not only written to entertain us, they're written to, to teach us. Uh, this, they tell us what a society values. Uh, stories tell us what we value. What do we hold valuable? What things did Achilles represent that we hold valuable? He represents courage, right? He represents valor, and not just valor on the battlefield, not just courage on the battlefield, but courage in life. Here he is given this mighty destiny, and he's told, live up to it or fail and fall into obscurity. Here's your choices. You're either going to be everything we hope you're going to be, or you're going to be a loser. Do you want to be a loser, or do you want to be famed in all the earth? Now, granted, you know, everybody in, in, in the world right now is not, uh, you know, not really faced with this challenge of do I want to be a loser or do I want to be famed in all the earth? Do I want to be the greatest, uh, you know, person ever that existed? Are people going to remember my name, um, you know, thousands of years from now? Probably not. But we have our own challenges, right? We have our own expectations for life. You know, me personally, uh, you know, I have expectations. I have expectations. I've always wanted to instruct. I've always wanted to teach. I've always wanted to share my experience, my knowledge with younger generations. And this is my chance to share that with you guys. And I am very excited to be able to do so. Maybe you have a different goal. Maybe you have a different expectation for yourself. Achilles teaches us that we can defy those expectations. Will we always succeed? Maybe not. But that's not really as important as facing the challenge head on. That's the first lesson that we can learn from Achilles is even if it looks like things might not turn out the way we want them to, we must persevere in spite of those things. Right? So Achilles, his character teaches us right off the bat, you must face your challenges. Even if somebody says you're going to fail, you have to face the challenge. You have to rise to the occasion. Now, the second thing that Achilles teaches us is that it's okay to be human. It's okay to make mistakes, but it's also okay, as long as we're learning from these mistakes, it's okay to be human. Achilles carries this massive destiny with him. He carries fate on his back all the time. He has these high expectations set before him. And at the same time, uh, he carries... Very human emotions. He's not afraid to be connected to the people around him. He's not afraid to be open to these other people around him. He is connected to his men. He is connected to his cousin Patrocles. He is connected to his, his slave, Briseis. Even though she is a prisoner of war, he is connected to her. He loves her. He cares for her deeply enough that having her denied of him is not only a disrespect, it is it is an emotional uh, trauma for him. He is very upset about it. He is not afraid to be in touch with these emotions. He is very much uh, he is very much in the moment, in the experience. This is something we can definitely learn from. What does this tell us? What does this tell us about what's valued by this culture? Not 
being so closed off to other people, being willing and open to connection with others. Uh, this, this tells us a lot about what the Greeks valued. Did they, did they value honor and taking responsibility and ownership of yourself? They certainly did. And the fact that they glorify Achilles so much, the fact that young men are out there trying to be like him and exemplify him during this time, people that are reading his poem and reciting this and, and trying to follow his example, what example are they following? They're following this idea of embracing the challenges that life throws their way with courage and honor, the idea that we must be willing to accept life's challenges. We have to open ourselves up to accept these challenges. The second thing is we have to be open to other people. And Achilles teaches us about this openness. And, you know, even though he doesn't always get along with the people around him, he's open to them. He's listening. He's hearing them. He cares about his people around him. He cares about his men. He cares about Patrocles his cousin. He is very much connected to them. Now, you know, and you would say, well, of course I care about my family. Yeah, I care about my family. I care about my friends. But Achilles teaches us that we've got to be more, we've got to be more than just caring about them. We've got to be responsible for them. You know, Achilles had a responsibility to Patrocles, and when he lets Patrocles go off and, and pretend to be him, he realizes after Patrocles died that not only was I, re- I was responsible for Patrocles. This is my fault. And this is what makes uh, Achilles' grief so strong, uh, is he blames himself for the death of Patrocles. Keep in mind, yes, he does blame Hector. He kills Hector for this. And that doesn't mean I'm advocating you killing people that wrong you. I am saying, though, that you do have to take responsibility for the people around you, especially the people you care about. And Achilles teaches us that lesson. You have to be taking responsibility for people around you that you care about. Are you doing the best that you can to make them the best people that they can be by being the best person that you can be? And this shows us one of the, one of the things that the Greeks are really valuing here. They value character. Achilles demonstrates the importance of having good character, the importance of surrounding yourself with people who can learn from you and people you can learn from. He elevates those around him. Achilles, everybody is talking about him throughout the Iliad. They're talking about how we can't win battles without you. We can't do it without you. We can't make it. We're great warriors, but we can't do this without you. Why can't they do it without him? Is it because Achilles is the greatest warrior of all? Well, maybe that's part of it. But maybe, maybe Achilles, just for a second, let's think about it. Maybe Achilles isn't the great warrior that everybody else thought he was. Maybe maybe it wasn't his prowess in the field that they were following. Maybe it was the qualities that he personified that they were following. Let's think about this. If you see somebody who is willing to embrace life's challenges, okay, they, make, they hold people around them accountable, and they hold themselves accountable for their own mistakes, okay? And then... Take it a step further, the people around them want to be better because of that person. That is huge. This is the real reason that Achilles is the guy that everybody wants to fight alongside in these battles. It's not just because he's hardcore and awesome and he can kill a lot of guys. 
They got lots of heroes in these battles. Ajax can kill a lot of guys. He's got a giant massive war hammer. He's, he's related to a god. Hercules has got super strength. He can kill a lot of guys. He could kill all of them if he wanted to, probably, right? There are gods fighting alongside these people in these battles. Why wouldn't you want to be fighting alongside them and hope that they're the ones that are on your side? But no, everybody is saying we need Achilles. We need him. He's the guy. We won't go into battle without him. His, even his guys are saying, we're not going into battle without you. How do you have that effect on another person? How can you have that effect? How can you have that impact on the people around you that they say, we need you? We need you. You are the guy. Is it the leadership qualities that Achilles has? No, maybe that's part of it. But no, more so than that, it's these other qualities that he's reflecting. Courage. People follow courage. People follow people that are empathetic to other people. People that understand, that listen to other people, they follow those people. People can relate to that. People relate to people, show emotion, that connect to them on a personal level. Here I am trying to connect to all of you guys. And, and you know, this is about, I mean, I can't get much more personal than this, right? I mean, you know, I can tell you my name, Dallas. You know, I can tell you I'm a master's graduate. You know, I'm a, I'm a graduate student of Akron University, but I've got, then I've got my master's. You know, I can tell you a lot about myself, right? I could, I could go on and on about all the things that I've studied, and we'll get to that later. But that still doesn't make me connect to you. This kind of conversation, this dialogue we're having right now, even though nobody's talking to me yet, and we will hopefully, hopefully somebody out there will We'll take the time today and we'll talk a little bit. But this is the thing that is important. This connection we're forming, this is the important thing. And this is what is valued. This is what we learn from old literature, that there are things that cultures value. And it tells us about the people that lived during this time. So whenever we talk about things like religion and we talk about mythology, uh, people that are not religious or people that don't believe in mythology tend to just write it off and they say, oh, no, 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 that's just myth. You know, uh, Achilles is never, you know, he, he wasn't real and we can't prove it. Or, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, you know just, take, just take any religion right off the top of your head, you know, Christianity. There's one of the ones we're probably most exposed to, right? Uh, you know, being here in America, it, it's pretty widespread. You know, a lot of people practice it. You know, you, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not going to advocate one way or the other for religion. Uh, you know, whatever, but what you believe is what you believe, and that's what's important. But I, I am going to tell you what you can learn from learning about another person's religion. You can learn what's important to them. You can learn what they value. And learning what someone values tells you a lot about a person. It doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you what sort of person you might be dealing with. What do they value? What do they believe in? What is important to them? And when you learn what's important to another person, then you can take another step, and then you can learn uh, to connect with that individual. You can learn a lot more about that person. Now, granted, these sorts of things, you know, religion or a person's, you know, affinity for mythology doesn't tell you everything about a person, but it does give you insight to what sort of person they are. It gives you insight into the kind of person you're talking to, the kind of person you're dealing with. You know, I always tell people, you know, when I, years ago, when I first started college, I had a professor tell me, and I'll never forget it, uh, you know, we got to talking about religion. We had so many students that were like, oh, no, 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 that's not what I believe in. 
I don't believe in that. Or we talk about any other culture, any other religion that they weren't exposed to yet. You know, we talk about Hinduism. We talk about, uh, we, we talk about Islam. We talk about any, any other religion, Buddhism, you know, Taoism, Taoism, what have you. There's, there's loads and loads of religions. We talk about them. We talk about what these people believed in during this time or, or, or this other part of the, in this other part of the world. And these people would immediately clam up. They'd be, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to learn about that. That's not what I believe in. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. I'm not going to do it. They would have just immediately shut themselves off. They didn't want to know about it. They didn't want to experience it. They didn't want to see it from another person's perspective. Why didn't they want to see it from another perspective? They were afraid that anything that was different than what, contrary to what they already knew, uh, would question would make them question themselves, and we have to be willing to step past that. Um, they were afraid to, uh, you know, experience another person's culture. They're afraid what that meant for them, that that would make them question their own truth, uh, make them question what they believed in. Uh, and you cannot be uh, so uh, threatened by what other people believe in. You have to let people believe in what they're going to believe in. Uh, part of you know we we live in a culture now where we're so connected, right? Here, Even now, my voice is reaching out to, I don't know how many of you are listening, but it's reaching out to the masses, right? This is, this is a live broadcast. And even now, I'm reaching across, uh, you know, the sea of media. And you never felt in a world where there's so much media, we've never been more disconnected from one another. And that's why I think it's important that we take a step back sometimes and realize that by, by, by looking at something like this, by looking at a story like this, we can learn a whole lot about not only the culture uh, of the ancient Greeks and what they valued, what they thought was important, but we can learn a lot about ourselves. We can learn about the things that our ancestors believed were important. And you might be surprised to notice, you, you, those of you who are listening, you might be surprised now that you're noticing these are things that you think are important. You're saying to yourself, well, I value courage. You know, I think connection with people is important. Love is important to me. Uh, you know, going after my dreams, ambition, that's important to me. Um, you know, being honorable, being honest, being loyal, these things are important to me. And it was important to them. It's important to the people that have come before you. It's important that we make that connection. We today don't take the time to really connect to one another, but we're also so we're afraid of this connection. But we're also afraid uh, of connecting with people that came before us. We're afraid of of letting ourselves just for one moment step out of our own lives and try to step into another person's life for a minute and try to see things from their perspective. And a story like the Iliad with so many colorful characters with so many guys running around doing great things and, and so many people that just get killed or and, and just sort of just disappear forever. And they're only immortalized in these pages, right? Their, their name lasts through the ages in these pages. And this one great story, and that's really the point of this right now, uh, this idea that we can we, – we ourselves – We'll ne- we, we ourselves are not going to find immortality, right? There's many forms of immortality, but we ourselves are probably not going to live forever. Let's, let's be real. Me, I'm probably not going to live forever, right? If I get lucky, maybe I live to be in the hundreds, and then I die. And then whoever knew me might remember me, and so on and so forth. But once they're gone, you know, my memory fades. 
these guys are immortalized uh, in this work. But they're not immortalized just because they're being written about. They're immortalized because people took the legend of their, uh, this legend somebody wrote about them, and they ran with it. They kept writing about it. Why did they keep writing about it? It's because the qualities these guys possessed were important to these people. Look at any superhero right now. Let's just take Superman. Superman has been around for a long time, right? Long time. People have seen, we've made so many movies about Superman. We've got loads of comics about Superman. He's been reimagined, redone. I mean, the first, the first, uh, the first, issue of Superman is sold in in for DC Comics in nineteen thirty eight. It is two thousand and seventeen and we're still talking about Superman. Why are we still talking about Superman? Why is Superman still relevant? That was nineteen thirty eight. Who you think the guys that wrote the comic for Superman in the original Action Comics number one in nineteen thirty eight thought that Superman would still be around in two thousand seventeen? No, probably not. They wrote a story, and they said, this is a good idea. We're going to go with it, and let's see what happens. Hopefully, people will like it. And now, we've got loads of, loads and loads of comics, loads and loads of movies. But why is this hero still around? Why? It's because of what he embodies, right? What sorts of things does Superman represent? He represents the goodness within people, right? He represents this positive force that we are looking for. He is superhuman, but he's also kind of like an actual person with his own challenges, right? He's the last he's the last of his people, so so to speak, one of the last of his kind. He, he's he's on earth with a bunch of people. He's trying to relate to human beings. He's super he's super strength he's got super strength and for all intents and purposes he can fly, he can shoot laser beams out of his eyes. For all intents and purposes, this is a guy who could have become easily become a tyrant. With all the power at his disposal, he could have taken over the world and been king of everything, right? Who could stop him? He's Superman. What are you going to do? Unless you've got a stockpile of kryptonite, what are you going to do? He's Superman. But he doesn't do that. And that's why Superman stays around so long. Now I know there's going to be people that say, well, what about the time that Superman was a bad guy and this and that? And we're not going to get into the details of the times where Superman slipped off the wagon and was bad. That's not really relevant to this conversation. What is relevant to the conversation is that with this great power at his disposal, he chooses to help people. He chooses to be generous. He chooses to be benevolent. He chooses to serve people instead of rule them. This is a quality that we value. Much like Achilles, we have a person with abnormal strength personifying qualities that our society values. And the story has been alive for decades. And it stays alive. We keep it alive. We keep making movies about it. Why? Because we need these heroes. Why do we need them? Why? Why do we as a society desire heroes? Because we want something to aspire to. We 
want someone to look up to. And for some people, they look up. They look up towards God. They look up to whatever gods they worship. Some people are looking up to these superheroes. Some people look up to just these heroes in general. They look up to maybe other people. But we look up to these people and these gods and these other beings for one reason and one reason only. They possess qualities that we admire, qualities we wish that we found in ourselves. We have the opportunity as people to read these stories and learn from their examples. Superman, you know, maybe is an extreme example because obviously, you know, right now, you know, you're not going to walk outside and fly off and, and go rescue somebody from a burning building. But you don't have to rescue people from burning buildings to be a hero. You can be a hero to the people around you. This is one of the major things that we can learn from guys like Achilles, from this idea of the hero, the trope of the hero. We can be heroes to the people around us. Achilles is a hero to the men around him. Do you think that he's a hero to the Trojans? He's not a hero to them. They hate him. He is despised by the Trojans. They want him to die. He is killing their people by the, by the masses. He is not a hero to them. He is their villain, and Hector is their hero, and he takes their hero from them. And to the Greeks, Hector is the villain to them. And so, and, and of course, Paris and Priam and all the other guys on the other side of the, of the... We, though, can be the heroes. Achilles is the hero to his people. He is the hero to the men around him. All of these grown men, these soldiers who have been training their whole lives to kill people are saying, Achilles, save us. Achilles, help us. Achilles, lead us. Achilles, do this. Achilles, do that. Why are they doing this? Because Achilles takes on the responsibility of doing these things. He enhances the people around them. He's the person that other people be around. Now, you can say, oh, well, maybe it's because he's famous and he's got money because he's the son of a king, and he's a great warrior, and how can people want to be around him? You have to reflect the other qualities that he reflects. It's not just Achilles' wealth and his prowess in battle that attracts these people to him. It is these qualities that we've been talking about. He's courageous. He doesn't shirk away from the challenge. He takes responsibility for himself. And he elevates other people around him by forcing them to take responsibility for themselves. He forces Agamemnon to take responsibility for his actions. And even though Agamemnon doesn't like it, he knows that he must do it. And he does it. And despite the fact that this leads to a quarrel between them, it still demonstrates that Achilles is a man of character who demonstrates his character not only by being this honorable individual, he doesn't just tell people to be good. He doesn't just tell people around him to be good warriors. He doesn't just tell people around him to take ownership of their lives and be responsible. He shows them how to do it by doing it first. He shows them how to be a great warrior by being a great warrior. He shows them how to be honorable and loyal and steadfast and honest with people in word and in action. He stands beside Odysseus. He stands be 
theatrically. He's not just at the front of these battles. He is standing beside these men. And they believe in him because he is standing beside them. And he is elevating them. He is a great warrior, but he makes all these other guys step their game up by saying, I'm a great warrior, follow me, and we will win battles. And these guys say, well, I want to win battles, and I don't want to die. So I'm going to follow this guy, and I'm going to do what he does, because he is a great warrior and knows how to win battles. So if I follow his example, I'm going to be like him. Now, obviously, not every single one of these guys is going to survive these battles, and they know that. But that's not the point. The point is, Achilles is the example And they're following it. They are following this example. They are learning from him. And he is being responsible in his role. And when he slips up, as he does with, he takes ownership. He grieves, gets over it, picks himself up, and he goes out and kills some guys. Now, that doesn't mean go out and kill people, but... What can we learn from that scenario? He acknowledges his mistake. What was his mistake? He let Patrocles pretend to be him, knowing deep within his heart that there was a chance that Hector would be at the battle and Hector could kill him. He knew that Hector would fight. Even if Achilles wasn't fighting, he knew Hector would be. Why? Because Hector is kind of like Achilles, right? They, that's what they did. They're the leaders wasn't going to let his men go into battle without him. Achilles wasn't, you know, was at odds with Agamemnon. He wasn't going to go fight for Agamemnon. So he pulled his own guys out, but he lets Patrocles, he feels sorry for them, and he lets Patrocles go in his place, and he knew when he did it that there was a chance. There was always going to be a chance that somebody could kill Patrocles. And when they did, he was devastated. Why was he devastated? Well, not just because he and Patrocles were very close, but also because it was his fault, and he takes responsibility for that. He takes ownership of that. How does he take ownership? He takes action. He gets up. He mends the fences with Agamemnon and says, if I hadn't have been so pig-headed and, and, and done this, we wouldn't be in this situation. Patrocles would still be alive. I'm sorry. Let's mend the fences. Then he goes out, he puts on his armor, and he says, now I'm going to go kill Hector. I'm going to go fulfill my obligation as a warrior now. I am going to go take care of business. Hector was always going to be, Hector and Achilles were always going to be the end-all, be-all. They were always going to have to fight. They both knew it. It's, it's set up from the very beginning in the Iliad. We all knew from the very beginning of the movie Troy that those two were going to meet. They were the two greatest warriors in the world at that time, according to the, according to the Iliad, and we knew that there wasn't any way they weren't going to fight each other. It was destined to happen. And so because of this, Achilles, at the time when he wasn't fighting, was shirking his destiny. He was shirking his responsibility to live up to his destiny, to live up to his legacy. But after Patrocles' death, he takes ownership of this mistake. He pulls himself up, picks himself back up, and goes out and does what he does. He does what he does best, better than anybody else in the world. He goes out, and he leads by example. And when he does, his men are inspired. They start winning battles again. 
and it's because Achilles is back. And it's not just because Achilles is fighting, you know, full of rage. Is you know, yeah, that, that's part of it. Yeah, he's angry. He's fighting. He's he's killing a lot of guys. That's definitely part of it. But the other part of it is, is that Achilles is leading by example. He's doing what he would have the other guys around him do. And this teaches us a very important lesson. Are we, this makes us ask a very important question, I should say, and that question is, are we doing all we can do to bring out the best in people around us? That's an important question that each one of us has to ask ourselves every day. Am I doing the best that I can to be the best kind of guy that I need to be? Am I doing what I need to do to be the best person that I can be? Am I advancing myself? And if I'm advancing myself, are other people learning from me? Are they watching? Are people around me learning from my example? And if they're learning from my example, is it a good example? Am I setting the right standard? Achilles is not just a great warrior in some epic. He's a standard setter. He's not just some obscure character from, from, a, from an epic story long ago that you know, was entertaining, and that's fine. Achilles can teach us a lot about ourselves. Achilles is a man. It was a man in this story. But he's a man that achieved great things. And even though he goes to his death, even though he dies, all men are going to die eventually. But it's not important that he died. What's important is that he lives up to these expectations. He is not forgotten. He's immortalized in these pages. People sing his praises. People live up to trying to be like him. He's a mythical character that people are learning from. They read these stories. The young Greek men would read the poem. They would recite the things. They wanted to be Achilles. They wanted to be him. They wanted to be this great warrior who was virtuous and honorable and strong and, and made other people around him better as people. That's what we have to aspire to. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's what we're looking at. When we look at stories like the Iliad, it's not important. Uh, you know, I want to circle back. because I realized that I, I kind of left an open-ended point for you guys, and I want to circle back real quick. Um, you know, I, I talked about, you know, one of my professors, and I talked about how people were not open to accepting this new information. They didn't want to accept it. There's another thing uh, that, that he taught me, though, that was very interesting. Uh, you know, in regards to mythology and religion, a lot of times we see a lot of opposition. People don't want to learn about they, these things, right? They don't want to – it sounds boring, right? It sounds like, you know, oh, what's the point? Who cares? That happened a long time ago. I can't learn anything from that. That's just so boring. Nobody, nobody cares. God, man, nobody cares. But here's what he told me. And it always resonated with me. And I want to share it with you guys, and I really hope it resonates with you. My professor told me, when I asked him, I said, you know, why, why do we learn about these myths anyway? Why do we learn about these religions? Why is it important? I mean, I get it. It's part of another culture, but why is it important? And he said, well, here's why it's important, Dallas. He said, and religion are the big stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And I want, that to, I want you guys to think about that for a minute, because it took me a minute to really understand what that meant. Mythology and religion are the big stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. What does that mean? What does that mean? 
if mythology and religion are the big stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, are we formulating our own inspiration? Are we creating these characters for inspiration that already, for an inspiration for a potential that already exists within each and every one of us? It's possible that all these heroes that we've made throughout the years, all these gods and heroes that we've been talking about and worshiping have really just been within each of us all along. That deep down, we all have the potential to be great, to do great things, to make the world a better place, to make people around us better by extension of us doing great things. That's the million-dollar question right there. And so I, I'm going to search, I'm, I'm going to go back to my my last my my other question. Are you doing what you need to be doing? Are you are you going to be an Achilles to people around you? Are you going to be the guy that makes people around you better, or the woman? Are you going to be the woman that makes people around you a better person? Is that what you're going to do? Can you learn from this lesson? Can you learn from your ancestors? Because it's not just the big stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. It tells us what's important. What's important? Is honor important to you? Is ambition important to you? What about your family? What about making them better people? You know, they all, you know people have said you can't change people, places, and things. But I, I disagree. I think, I think we can. I think together we can change people, places, and things. I think we can change places. We can make places better. I think we can change things. We can improve things, right? We can fix things. We can make things better than they were. But I think more importantly, we can change people. We can change their minds. We can change their hearts. We can change the way they view the world. Media does that all the time, right? The way they tell you a story has a direct effect on your reaction to that story, right? Of course it does. You can flip on the news right now and just be absolutely disgusted with the world around you. And then you can change the channel to another news station and be absolutely overjoyed with the world around you. It's amazing how perspective can change everything. And so before I close off, I'm going to give you guys some some stuff you can go look up for yourself because I want you guys to double-check me. I want you guys to go out and research this stuff for yourselves. Go learn a little bit about it. Go learn a little bit about Achilles. Go go read uh, the Iliad if you're interested. Go read these other books about this time period. Learn a little bit about it. Don't just take my word for it. So I want to recommend a few books to you guys. You don't have to read them, but if you feel like reading them, do it. Uh, I want to recommend J.E. Lendon's book, Soldiers and Ghosts, A History of Battle and Classical Antiquity. Uh, J.E. Lendon talks about how the Greeks conducted war. He talks about how conducted themselves not only in warfare, but how they conducted themselves out of warfare. He also talks about the influence of the Iliad on the Greek, pe- on the pe- on the Greek people. He talks about this idea of glory versus the reality. And he talks about how how people, not only how people fought, but why they fought. And really how these individuals 
perceived themselves? How did they look at themselves? What was important to them? Why would they fight? What, would they, what did they sacrifice for? What made them want to sacrifice? Uh, I'm going to also recommend uh, that you take a look at a few other books. Uh, you might want to look at uh, The Trojan War, A New History by uh, Barry S. Strauss. Um, it's, a, it's a good book. Uh, he examines uh, the Trojan War, and, and he examines the Iliad. He talks a little bit about, uh, you know, how, uh, how they believe the war uh, between the Trojans and the Greeks would have been fought, and and how people uh, during that time, uh, what they thought about conflicts like that. Uh, you might also enjoy taking a look at uh, Fathers and Sons in Athens, Ideology and Society in the Era of the Peloponnesian War, to give you another insight. It's also by Strauss. And it will give you more insight into sort of how, how Greeks, uh, how the Greeks themselves sort of uh, valued these stories and, and, and what they told their sons, what they told their daughters, what they told each other. Uh, and it's important, I think, uh, that we all take the time uh, to not only learn about uh, these, not only uh, not forget the importance of these stories and the value that we can find in them, but it's also important that we take the time to evaluate ourselves. Uh, because any time uh, you get new knowledge, you want to incorporate that into your life and, and into, what, into what you do, Right. Uh, and I'm a firm believer in having people double check you. So you go ahead and take a look at those. Uh, take take a look at those. Learn a little bit. Of it. And if and if for those of you who would like uh, to read the Iliad, um, and you're not sure where you can get one, you can get one on Amazon right now. Just get Homer's The Iliad. It's an epic poem, and you don't have to read 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 it in poetic form. You can get it in uh, you can get a prose form if you prefer it. Um, you know, this is a this is a great book. Uh, it's one of the oldest uh, poems we have. Of, you know, and it's it's one of the best stories ever told, right? It's a it's a story about real, you know, real life characters, characters that really do form a we can form a connection with because they're men, right? They're they're human beings. They're made of flesh, just like you and me. They make mistakes. They learn from mistakes. They love people, they lose people. Uh, so it, it's, you know, there's tremendous things we can learn. Just because the Iliad is fiction doesn't mean you can't learn from it. There's always a lesson to be had uh, if we look for it and we're looking in the right place. It'll find you. Uh, so that's all I've got for you guys today. Uh, this has been the Bareback Facts with Dallas Duclo. I hope to be back on here again very soon. Hope to see you all. Uh, hope to hear from uh, hear from people in the future. And uh, thanks for tuning in, those of you who tuned in. Hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, until next time.